Hello and welcome back to Pharmacist Diaries, the podcast that reveals the secret lives of pharmacists, from where their journeys began, where they are now, and everything in between. I am your host, Anisha Patel, and today is the second episode of the Pharmacist Diaries Roadshow. I am delighted to introduce Fan Cheng to the podcast this week. Be prepared to hear a lot of laughter during this episode as Fan and I enjoy a fantastic conversation. Her energy is infectious and I absolutely loved getting to know her. I know that she's keen to share this episode with her family and I know for a fact that her mum will be so, so proud to hear her career story. She is absolutely brilliant and she has no idea how amazing she truly is. I was in awe of all the things that she's achieved and currently what she's doing is insane when it comes to the amount of work that she's doing and the dedication she has to the paediatric field. At the moment, she is a specialist pharmacist at Great Ormond Street Hospital specialising in immunology, rheumatology and dermatology three specialties in one i mean that's incredible just in itself and i love that she just has taken on so many fields and loves everything that she does within it she is also a research fellow with the national institute for health and care research and she is also a pharmacogenetic champion with great ormond street hospital she is a member of a working group with nhs england on pharmacogenomics. She's also the co-chair of the London group of the neonatal and paediatric pharmacist group. And she is a key member to two specialist interest groups in both immunology and rheumatology. Is it just me? Or does everyone just think that this is amazing? I love it. This episode also highlights the importance of strong relationships with patients and families and how Fan builds meaningful connection with her patients and provides personalized care. Let's get into the episode, guys. You're going to love Good it. Good to go. Here we are. Welcome to Pharmacist Diaries, Fan. Thank how you. How does it feel? I'd be nervous. There's <laughs> <laughs> such a big mic right in front of me. Yeah, no, ignore it. Pretend it's not there and it's me and you. Maybe on a beach having mocktails together, enjoying Say two conversations. Away, safety to Co- apart. COVID friendly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for making the time to come onto the podcast, first of all. Thank you for your um, time. Yeah, looking forward to having our conversation and getting to know you for mm-hmm. sure. Um, you gave me an amazing history of your career in email. So it, it kind of uh, gave me lots of opportunity to ask lots of questions. But um, I always start the episode by asking why you became a pharmacist in the first place. Actually, never thought why I'm not being a pharmacist. Because my, 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 my dad used to be a surgeon. And now he's retired as a Chinese medicine doctor. My mom's a nurse. So I grew up in a department in the theatres thinking, like growing up, I need to do something health related. And my dad said to me, like, don't be a doctor because a female in the doctor's world is not a fair game. It's a lot of hard work. I want to have a nice life. And my mom said, don't you think to become a nurse? You'll kill someone before you can even say the word nursing. (laughs) So I was like, Okay, fine. So I've become a pharmacist. Safety officer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, actually, it's not a bad choice. And if I would do it over again, I would still choose pharmacy. How many years have you been qualified now? Oh, do I have to say it? Yeah, go on. (laughs) I don't even know. I qualified in 2005. Oh, okay. So around nearly 20. Yeah. That's exciting. That's old. No, that's not all. That's exciting and inspiring. Um, So uh, tell me a little bit about what university was like for you and where you kind of envisioned what type of pharmacist you were going to be. I studied Nottingham. and I Same as Steve? Yes, Nottingham Rose. (laughs) And I've always been a hospital pharmacist. I never considered any other career pathways. It's just very clear in my head. I just want to be a hospital pharmacist due to some clinical work and yeah. Did you do any placements during your um, undergraduate degree that mm. helped you to to realise that pathway? How did you know? Yeah, I did uh, some placement with Lloyd's uh, in my second year 
And also did my pre-reg. I did four weeks in the community placement as well. I love it. It's a really nice community. People coming for chats. We have like older people coming in every day just for a chat because they're so lonely. I just want someone to chat. It's a really lovely and supportive environment. But I still find hospital a bit to my taste. I, I've got my vision already set for hospital. Right? That's set ever since I studied pharmacy. So yeah, it's become just an easy choice for me. Yeah. Um, and you started your first job in London, is that right? No, I actually started in uh, Essex. Oh, in Essex, yes. Yeah, Harlow. Harlow. Yeah. yeah, very small town. Uh, why did you choose there? Because they offered the first one to offer me a job. Fair enough. <laughs> There's quite a few people who um, kind of go down that route. Because actually, it's quite hard in around February time, right? When yeah. all the applications come out uh, for band six hospital jobs. Yeah. And sometimes the residency and kind of step programs come out at slightly different times. And then you get offered a potential job, but there are more applications kind of lingering and it it feels very unprofessional to say yes to an organization, try for an interview and then, you know, aim to switch because the world of pharmacy is quite small and and people kind of remember that. And especially when you have exam to contemplate, I just want this job security that I've got a job that I can go to and this residence that I can actually stay. Because my family is not based in UK, so I want somewhere that I can stay with like as a residency program so I know I can somewhere to stay and I've got a training program that I can go to I can go to to my diploma later on as part of the interview questions like can I go to and go to the clinical farms a diploma so yeah you can so like yeah done deal yeah yeah fair enough and it's a good start in terms of uh, building a foundation and completing the diploma and I mean, there's lots of advantages of doing residency programs and the STEP programs, but there's also a lot of advantages of some of the smaller hospitals as well. You get a lot more attention. Um, You know, you get that kind of like one-on-one support Mm -hmm. where you're not competing against, you know, 20 other sort of newly qualified pharmacists. Um, So it's quite a nice environment. And I've, I've done a bit of both and I actually like both equally but at the moment obviously I'm in a big teaching hospital and I'm loving it yeah um and I believe I'll probably stick to the to the larger hospitals which is quite good in the smaller ones you've got more opportunity to and it's quicker to implement things the changes that you'd like to see and you can propose things much easier and you can see the results much quicker because it's such a small hospital and small community you can just like oh I've got this idea can we do it bounce around ideas you can get it done quite relatively quickly and then you've got more opportunities because there are only a few people on the ground yeah and you've got more opportunities like okay why don't you take this project and you know run with it and we support you so it's much you've got different opportunities yeah definitely and um where was it that you found pediatrics in your life i did after finish my harlow rotations i did the band six rotations there and then just got my band seven rotations and the guys and opportunity come up as a rotational band seven and part of it of the rotations of pediatrics and i did it and i just loved it <laughs> no loved turning it. back <laughs> yeah I, I love it when when i'm you know talking to other pediatric pharmacists because there's always that one little point where they say i found it and i loved it and i've never turned back like this is it steve said it as well um our friend said it as well it's so weird because when i was in harlow i remember myself vividly saying i will never do pediatrics in my life i'll never do rheumatology and dermatology in my life (laughs) and look where i am and look where you are yeah literally the the rheumatology immunology dermatology queen yeah Yeah, a bit more experience in that (laughs) Um, what is it about paediatrics that you love so much? It's a completely different world to adults. Like if you feel like adults, you know, GI surgery, cardiac, gastro is one thing. In paediatric itself, it's a, it's a specialty. And under those, all different like cardiac and renal and stuff is another specialty all by itself. So it's really different kettle fish and you can really apply 
the science of what you learned as a pharmacist into practice every single day. You need to challenge yourself every single day. Is it the right drug, right ingredient? Is the dose correct? It's nothing is the standardized thing. How you can help the children take the medicines? Have you, how can you get the medicines to the children? Because they don't have access to a lot of medicines. So these are these things just so interesting. And it, 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 I think this is where pharmacist input is needed most because of the risk involved and all the pharmaceutical knowledge we need to link everything together to provide the plan, plan for the children. Yeah, amazing. And so when you were at um, Evelina doing your rotation, mm. uh, what ward were you on? I was on the surgical ward. Okay, cool. Yeah. Which was Mountain Ward at the Mountain, time? Mountain, yes. Mm. This is when I first did my, as part of my um, pediatric, well, as part of my rotations, part of the adult rotations. But then when I become the band seven pediatric rotation Evelina, I did NICU as well. And I love it so much. <laughs> I do queue. love neonates. And uh, yeah, Sean is our queen of neonates yes, of at course. Evelina. Yes. Um, but it's it's such a lovely uh, specialty to work in. And um, it's nice to get to know the parents because it's quite yeah. a vulnerable time Yeah. Um, uh, for them and the child. But the input that we have within from the pharmacy perspective is is great. There's a lot of impact that we make in terms of administration, looking at the prescribing, the safety, putting in guidelines into place like formulary. Uh, how, How do you get doses, tiny, tiny, tiny doses from standardized, you know, adult medications? It's, you know, there are a lot of challenges that you have to face, a lot of obstacles that you have to overcome. And all the, a lot of clinical dilemmas yeah. to do when there's absolutely no evidence at all. Like if you imagine about 90% of the medicines used in neonates are unlicensed, where they don't have a license for children, not even just like in neonates. What can you do when they're, like we always say about evidence-based practice, but in children, like it's really common to use unlicensed medicines. It's almost like inequality of access to medicines for children themselves. When they are most high at risk, they remember the growth changes every day, but you don't have the proper support for them to go through clinical trials to find the right doses, the side effects, whether it works for them or not. It's really different. It's part of the beauty of being in this specialist area, though, yes. isn't it? You've got the opportunity to work with people who want to do the research and, and get that evidence in order to kind of make those inequalities and the, the, the kind of statistics behind that reduce. Yeah, because, and that's where I first feel I'm fully embedded in the MDT is when I work in NICL and NATO ICU because you are so working alongside of dietitians and the nurses and the registrars and consultants every single day talking about the PN for the babies where you can fit in, you can just squeeze one more calories in there, you'll be a winner for the day, you know. And like, oh, what happens if you have too much, loose, lo- too low glucose or the liver is not metabolizing, the lipids not handling lipids very well because they're so premature. And you see in babies like 500 grams, 600 grams. And so like, what I can do for you, darling? So yeah. all these things really, really brings, I really love doing a clinical pharmacist in neonates or like in children because this is where we actually fulfill the the duty of a pharmacist to safeguard these children and generate um, evidence for them as well and it's when I this rotation actually I co-write my first paper with a registrar there on neonatal PNs Oh, amazing. So it's literally like, okay, what we can we do to support this cohort of people when we just don't quite know what to do with the PNs? And that's why starting my first taste in research, it's like, this is the best rotation ever. <laughs> <laughs> what was the uh, topic within PN? Um, so basically, at that point in time, Aspigan, which is like the standard for PNs, they haven't updated the guidelines for a very long time. Okay. And literally, we've done an audit to see our use of PN, does it actually meet the guidelines and whether a standardized back at that point in time, is it is it the way forward? Okay. So we reviewed evidence um, expecting the new SPGAN guideline to come out. So we're literally like, this is where it's lacking and we're really looking forward to the new guideline. 
that's quite exciting as a band seven pharmacist to be yeah. in, be involved in something that's quite that impacts a lot of people. Yeah. In terms of um, you know, gathering evidence, seeing the outcome and then impacting the neonatal cohort. Yeah, because we had a pharmacist visiting from Paris at that point. So she did an audit. So we literally, from her audit, said, let's do something. We need to write something, publish our data out, because it's rare to have this data available to us in real-life data. Let's make good use of it. We learn from this data and what we can hopefully see the new aspect and reflect what we found so yeah what was it about the experience of data collection and research that you were i guess passionate about at that time at that point in time we we actually recommend we do the scanning for literature we actually got anything on neonates it's really really rare to have reporting on neonates and parental nutrition and we always there's a debate whether we use standard bag or not using standard bag and hoping with this with the date order that we actually do cannot satisfy to us that standard bag is the way forward for us and we from our center as a large pediatric and neonatal center we share experience for the centers to see if other people can take some information some learning from my experience and a review that we've done with the existing literature as well mm. And you're you're smiling, which means you obviously really enjoyed it at the time, and it's it's nice that you get to kind yeah. of share that on the on it's the podcast. Traumatizing when you get the review back. <laughs> <laughs> they tear your article apart, but <laughs> but still, it's a really good learning opportunity really? in terms of your growth as a pharmacist. And yes, these little pockets of sort of research that you can get involved with, which there are so many opportunities in pediatrics. There's always questions that we are asking ourselves or unknowns. Mm. normally it's like oh well how come there is no evidence on this well hey this is an opportunity for you to get involved or do some research to try and yeah. find that information because you know that will it will impact the patient quite significantly or that cohort of patients as well yeah because no no two children are the same you have assessed the data you have the experience you've got the relationship with the uh, with the parents with the children with the entity team Farms is a very ideal position to actually generate evidence to support our own um, work because we all rely on on evidence, like to do the guidelines, to do the standardised things. And if we don't generate the evidence, who's going to do it? Mm. So we are in a very well placed situation, very well trained, equipped to do that. Yeah, we just need to actually think about okay. Research shouldn't be just on the side bonus, but it should be part of our integral job to do it every single day. It doesn't need to be a huge clinical trial thing. Just a little audit and your project can get involved bigger and bigger, getting your collaborations to work. It may come into something substantial. It's quite rewarding to also do a poster presentation mm. or get to go to a conference to basically showcase your work as well. Definitely. You know, the end goal is quite a rewarding experience. Yeah, because when I attended the last MPPG conference last year, I saw one of the posters used quoting the paper I have I like was part of. I was oh, like, really? oh my God, they used my dose. <laughs> That's amazing. I was like, oh my God, it's really, really nice. Mm. They actually be standardized against and being quoted. It's like, ah, oh, it's actually does worth something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. People do use it. Yeah. I love that. Mm. So you did a rotation in NICU, yes. and obviously the Evelina rotations are usually uh, as a band seven are one year long. So uh, where else did you go? I think I did a bit of Reno as well. Yes, I did a bit of reno with the transplant and the um, dialysis on did you beach. Like it? What? I love it because <laughs> I did the adult equivalent when okay, I was a yeah. in Thomas. I did an adult equivalent um, when I was a resi as well yeah. and loved it. And MTT teens are part of the yeah. team, and you can do the transplant clinics with them. Yeah, education Clinic, is education. just absolutely empowering. The patient is, you know, at the forefront of. A renal transplant ward, um, the impact no. that you have on parents and patients is amazing. And because it's a long-term life exactly. sort of condition, 
um, you see the child grow from potentially, you know, a three to four year old all the mm -hmm. way up to kind of adult age. And that is a beautiful journey. Yeah. Though you see some hurdles around the teenage years. Yes. Uh, you're still part of that patient's journey. And just to see them developing. Yeah. You know, for people like Will, who obviously been in that specialty for a long time and he knows the patients really well. Um, it, it must feel really good to be part of their life because it's it's a yeah. plays a massive part in their day to day. Exactly, and then they always like when they walk past, they just put their head through the pharmacy dispensers. Like, hi, I'm here. You know, just to just to touch base with them, even though they're not come in for like medicine review or for yeah. It's quite nice to have a really good relationship building with the patients and parents, and you need that, mm. especially for long term people when potentially they've been on this mess for a very long time. And at some point, they may question themselves, why I have to keep on taking these medicines? Can I just have one day miss? And then it can become non-compliance further down the road. So building a good relationship with them, it's actually quite nice to tap in and actually make a plan to say, okay, why don't we agree on some things that you can, you know, have some leeway to play around yeah. with the medicines. I'd rather have this open dialogue when they be actually be honest with you and make a plan around the the way of living, the, the lifestyles, rather than they just do it behind their back when they have no support at all. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of conditions in paediatrics which are long-term. I mean, mm. look at sickle cell disease at the Evelina, you know, you've got type 1 diabetics that get diagnosed on Mountain Ward. And um, you, you see patients come into hospital on a somewhat regular basis. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're kind of uh, regular inpatients yeah. um, and their families. Yes. And, you know, you, you get really involved with the parents. You know about the siblings. You know what issues they have at school. You know, you know what kind of things they have to juggle. Yeah. And being a parent myself now, there's a whole new perspective um, when I work as a pediatric pharmacist and... It's really nice to see them transition in terms of the independence. Yes. You know, starting off very much, you know, relying on the parent to do all the work and then getting to the point where they transition to doing a lot of their, you know, medication adherence themselves. Yeah. Um, which is nice to be part of that journey. Yeah. And you'll be amazed a lot of child children can actually say the medical terms really well. Like some people say, I have got JIA. It's like, what is JIA? Juvenile endopathic arthritis. It's like, that's a big word coming out from a six-year-old or a five-year-old, you know? I know. It's like, oh my God. And they can tell you, well, not exactly the names. So like, I kicked this one for that. And this one for that. I know what I did my my MRI show. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, we've had a few of the renal transplant children, the five-year-olds, who know you do a drug history, you don't need the parent. Yeah. You know, they are just so educated on what they're doing, what the tablets look like, how often they take them, what they're used for, and they can pronounce all the names correctly, which is very cute. Yes, exactly. So every time when I even talk to the parents, I actually introduce myself to the child first and then to the parents. And I always look at the child because they are the ones that actually like, oh, why are you not involved with me? It's my care. Some like feedback from the children just are like, I want to be with my care. I want you to look into my eyes and ask me about my conditions, how I feel like, what our meditations are for. So it's actually really nice to actually get them involved because that's how it can kind of transition the care to themselves, like looking after their own life, um, medical, you know, health or their medicines because they have been rough in day one of the journey. Yeah, absolutely. And as a pharmacist in paediatrics, I think there's a lot of skill involved with kind of navigating the language that you use with children and what you might say to a three-year-old versus a six-year-old versus a 10-year-old, um, which is a, a really important skill, uh, even if you're counseling on an inhaler or asking them how they feel when they have an asthma attack. Yeah. What a three-year-old might tell you in terms of detail is very vague compared to a six or a nine-year-old. Um, and then it's quite interesting to see that development in terms of how they engage with you as well. Yeah. I love peds. I love It's just so fascinating. And um, so you obviously enjoyed a lot of kind of the pediatric rotations as a band seven. Yeah. What, what kind of made you transition towards Great Ormond Street as an alternative place to work? I feel I am very 
I'm ready to move the next step forward. Because seven, you've got a lot of support for you to do other things. And when you're actually removed from a environment they're very comfortable in that's where the challenges are and then when you take more more responsibilities as a senior pharmacist you may need to make the judgment call that you are scared of to make when you're at seven if no one to check yeah. or like i just want to double check this is my decision and stick with it it's a it's a big transition and there's come point in life and i just want some deep independence so i can actually make some independent judgments and take responsibility for it. Yeah. Did you do anything to kind of prepare yourself for that transition from a 7 to 8A? We, um, in Evelina, they has actually helped me with a lot of projects that I get involved in. Okay. To like um, audits and things like that. The clinical governance side of things. Help me with the, uh, let me write some guidelines, doing some like um, mass optimization projects to actually give me a feel what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm. And also equip me with the skills that I've, it's transferable no matter what specialties I'm going to take, you know, wherever I'm going to go. These are transfer skills that's very usable, applied, applicable in any walks of pharmacy life, really. I understand you like being a trainee, well, a pre-reg or a trainee pharmacist tutor. Yes, they they teach me a lot. And hopefully I did try to guide their way as well. Because <laughs> everyone's been there as a trainee pharmacist. They've been so feeling some helpless and the stress involved getting the, all the evidences together, passing the dreaded exam that if we like literally sleep on BNF forever and ever and ever for the whole nine months. It's it's a hard year. Very. I mean, I, I think we expect, especially in hospital rotational kind of jobs, and now when you've got the split roles, mm-hmm. you may be enjoying, you know, two different experiences, but in order to gain the right evidence in the right place, it's a lot of organization. Um, you're getting used to a nine to five job. You're having to study at the same time. You might be commuting, you know, far yeah. um, to get back and from work. Um, you spend six months potentially in one area. And then, you know, if you're in hospital, you might go to a GP practice or a community pharmacy where the environment is completely different. And you feel like you're, you know, stepping into your first day at work. Yeah. Though, obviously... That sort of rotational type training year and adapting to new environments gives you, um, I guess, more more courage and you become more comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah. So it's a great learning experience, but it's tough. And I think we have really high expectations in the hospital environment um, in terms of what our trainees are expected to do. So they do need a lot of mentorship and they do need a lot of support. And I think in the last few years with with COVID as well, a lot of people are having high levels of stress. You know, they've got personal situations at home. Um, I've had quite a few trainees who've been experiencing quite a bit of anxiety. Yeah. Um, and it's been different um, to the previous years that I've uh, I've worked. Have you noticed anything similar? Um, I I have stopped um, mentoring for just one year during the COVID times um but i'm starting to mentoring again last for the last year i feel people are actually managing quite well in terms of using online learning resources than they used to before COVID. true yeah and there are a lot of information that are not available to them electronically mm. compared to COVID, and the exam, uh, the exam style has changed the way of supervision may have changed the way assessing the tutors may have changed, not just like come every day face to face anymore. Are just different ways of working around things. But because it is only the first time they actually do the pre-reg, this is the only time they've been doing pre-reg, I'm actually I'm not too sure if they experience differently. That'd be quite nice a research to actually see how they oh, do. Oh no, your brain is ticking. <laughs> your eyebrows are going up. Already yeah. coming up with some ideas. But but that 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 is really interesting because you're actually adjusting to nine to five. Just standing up nine to five is really hard. Mm. I remember myself for the first month. I literally just go home at five and crash land on my yeah, bed. Yeah, totally. And wake up the next day because I just not used to standing nine, eight to nine hours a day. And then adjusting to yourself, obviously family life still happen. 
that personal life still happen. Or this thing might do together, you need to now work. So as a team, or this conflicts to me to resolve, how to interact with other people, give them a good impression, mm. the potential employers in the future. <laughs> but these things, it is a lot to take in, yeah, especially absolutely. when you're in isolation the last two, three years. Mm. And then being work full time, it is a big challenge, a yeah. big ask from them. But I, I have to say, I've met a lot of um, training pharmacists. They've got a lot to offer and they've got this, this strength in them that they can actually persevere and sail through it. And it is amazing. I, I, I've talked about this before on the podcast that we under we underestimate uh, training pharmacists and newly qualified pharmacists yes. because they learn so much in a short space of time and it's just trying to I guess mentor and support them into their kind of early years yeah um and make the most out of the skills that we know that they have and also I'd helping them to identify what their skills are yeah. individually yeah. not just as a cohort and what their expectations are as a pharmacist but really honing in on hey look you're really good at you know this data collection and you've you know published something during you know your training pharmacist year maybe you should consider going into research yeah. and potentially looking at a career pathway which highlights those skills mm. um, or someone who's very kind of clinical maybe they um, enjoy kind of communication and consultation skill and helping them to identify you know a pathway that suits them and not just in hospital but you know you're looking at developing clinics whether that's in a, a GP surgery or are they better based in, in a high street pharmacy at the heart of a community and setting up a travel clinic or mm. vaccination clinic um yeah, it's it, it's. I think there's a lot that we can do as experienced pharmacists to support them through that pathway. Yeah, because I am observative learner, so I reflective learner. So I really mm. observe people, and I always tell my peers, like, just observe how people work. You may or may not agree how they work, but you can take the things that you agree with and be part of your integrate become part of your practice if you think that you don't feel comfortable with or you don't feel you like it you just be a no for yourself this is what I need to avoid for the pitfalls or things I need to strengthen myself when mm. it comes to my position when I become a qualified pharmacist and there's a lot of responsibility on the tutor or even being a mentor yeah just not to guide them to just extend the pathway, but actually help them to explore different options Absolutely. available to them. You can just link that down of networking. I was like, oh, this is opportunity. Why don't you go with that? And like, I push my pre-registers like, why don't you publish your orders and as a an abstract presented in conferences? And this is how we share learnings. It's so unique. It's, and like, gosh, you are now privileged to work with a cohort, just a huge cohort of patients with rare diseases. Why don't you publish your um, experience, like even as an abstract or as a poster or like maybe an oral presentation if you got lucky. There's no, there's only, you know, say they can say yes or no, but at least you've got a good opportunity to mm. get involved. And then you can get to think a bit more about clean governance, which they may not observe as a pre-register pharmacists but like they may have a standard knowledge but when you actually do a publication you need to think a little bit more you need to research a bit more and say like, oh this is why we link this and this rotation together you know and this is where it clicks so it's really nice to see them actually develop so this is why i did it oh i understand now it's a bit like having children yes <laughs> <laughs> and, and obviously I try to still Pediatric pharmacy is the best route in the world. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. But yeah, I mean, they they are, uh, you know, they're not they're not babies, but you know, they come out of university, but they're still sort of naive and green to the life of a working adult. Yeah. Um. So it's really nice to to see them develop. Yeah. Um. Especially if you're a, a tutor, it's really nice to see quite a steep kind of level of growth. Um, and I saw this when I was the um, pre-reg director for a year. I covered a mat leave post and I had uh, nine trainees um, and they were all so different um, and how quick they were to kind of develop and just get into the you know, training year um, varied significantly. Some were just like on it, super organized, super efficient, and others needed a lot of support. And sometimes you need to extend your network as a tutor and reach out to other people for ideas um, 
and give them emotional support in in other ways or mental health support or financial support, whatever it is that they need, because there are personal situations that impact your work life as well and helping them to kind of get that balance. Definitely. So when you applied for your job at Great Ormond Street, what were you applying for? What was the first job that you had? Uh, it's, it's labelled as rheumatology and dermatology. But I start, when I started to post, it becomes immunology, rheumatology and dermatology. And what made you think that three specialties was the way forward in one job? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a lot of work that is splitting yourself it is a brand new three, post that yeah i just feel like because i obviously i do pediatrics with palliative care and education and mm. i was doing some formulary yeah and i was also supporting mountain ward because they currently don't have an 8a mm. so i was just kind of like the go-to person if they need any help but being split into so many directions means that you are kind of moving very slowly. You might be moving forward, yeah. but you're moving forward very slowly because you're split and your time is split. Your energy is split. Um, and it's very hard to be in multiple places um, in terms of being organized and efficient, especially for the job that I have where you're partly at the hospital, partly at the university. So it's mm. two email accounts, you know, two sets of staff, students in one place, you know, students coming into the workplace and there's, you know, a real mix. Um, how did you how did you cope with that transition? Well, well before I applied for a job, I actually sat down with the my, um, my um, line manager-to-be literally say what role is going to be look like mm. how we're going to plan it what are the what is the rationale of developing this brand new post what should be the priority of it so i've when i before i start i already have a good idea what needs to be done in the urgent like in the immediate that's a good idea future so, and when i go into the interview i know exactly what i wanted for this post and what mm. i envision this post to be it's really good that they actually offered me a very long time to set, sit me down and then go through the, the, the things they wanted that person to do. So I can actually research on the NHS commissioning policies on these things to actually see what is the pharmacist's input they expect to see and what we can really seek offer with one person coming to this new job. Yeah. And what are the high risk things we can, like low hanging fruits that we can actually tackle in the first because I it was funded for two years in, initially as a charity so in those two charity in these two years what I can achieve and what I can demonstrate to to for to like justify mm. my position what was it like setting up a new service did you do anything specific in your role at Evelina that helped you in terms of say transferable skills I talked to um Scott who is the rheumatology Guru at Guy Thomas at the site. Uh, just have a have a good thorough understanding of what is involved, like at least in the adult side of things. Yeah, and then I can kind of see what things I need to 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 do to in order to like uh, prepare myself to understand at least like the the, the things that pediatric indications, the clinical diseases that you should see in pediatrics. So I can actually kind of understand a little bit. So I'm not going, you know, completely naive about the, the conditions. It's impossible mm. to study everything, but at least you know roughly the terms and medicines they're going to deal with. Mm. Um, with immunology as well, and any kind of website to look at, any communicating things, any new brand new nice guidelines that come out that actually may be able to help. These things just give me a good idea what I'm going to see. And when I start looking at these patients, I'm not completely naive. It's like, oh my God, I've got three specialties to learn. What should I do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite hard to split your time in terms of learning the, the clinical topics, yeah. but also building a service, mm -hmm. managing the consultants and what their wants are, managing the pharmacy department in terms of the budget and what they're looking for, what are the needs of the patients, mm -hmm. commissioning, like that's yeah. a lot. But when you break it down into smaller pieces, like you're saying, and you reach out to your network and see what they did. I did the same with palliative care, Bumik. Yeah. He was my first phone call. Oh. Once I found out that, you know, he was the pharmacist here at Great Ormond Street, I just asked for a Teams call. 
And um, I know he's doing it sort of five days a week. And I just asked his advice. What would you do if you only had one day? What would you, what would be your priority um, mm. in your current job if you were only given one day? And then how would you build up to more days? Um, and that really helped me. Mm. That really helped me to kind of look at the basics, yeah. which was clinically screening, symptom management plans. Like that's the basic. That needs to be done for yeah. all of your patients. Um, see how you get on. Um, I audited my time. Mm. I audited every day that I worked for an entire year and what I did every single day of that year. Um, just really brief summary on a Word document. Sometimes I'd just write it up in my diary, um, take me literally a minute, and then type it up into a Word document um, at the end of the week. Mm. And by the end of the year, I was able to put a business case together to increase my hours because I was demonstrating my impact um, in terms of the service and also, you know, what we could be doing for our patients that we're not and identifying the gaps in practice where I wasn't spending enough time. I spent a lot of hours doing inquiries. Mm -hmm. um, we identified how many parents contacted the consultants within our team uh, with medication inquiries that then came to me. And a lot of them were supply issues, GPs not wanting to prescribe in primary care, um, medication errors because there's been a switch of formulation from something we've provided and then what they've got in the community. Um, community pharmacies unable to order, unlicensed medicines, you know, the usual, yeah. the usual in the world of pediatrics. But it was extremely time-consuming dealing with that. And I just thought to myself, like, this this we need to find a way to solve this um so part of my role then um developed into supporting gps um and community pharmacies with education and training mm. um how can we support our primary care network to understand more about palliative care medicines mm. so that these issues don't arise in the first place yeah. our consultants do not need to be called at 3 a.m for inquiries which could be done quite simply during the day um, or parents running out of medications because they're begging their pharmacy for orders and then you know the pharmacy's just not getting back to them in the community and then just finding last minute solutions um, and calling outpatient pharmacies in their local area or their local pediatrician and, and that's time consuming. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of time that goes into doing that and yes it's part and parcel of my job but I was just thinking outside the box that how can I stop this? Yeah. from happening so a dissimilar thing as well just document like in a day how my my role has been split across the three specialties it's almost like impossible <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like whoever shout the loudest will get my attention whoever is more pushing just like because we've got children with rare diseases you've got someone is really critical ill even though my number of inpatients is really and it's not a lot compared to like local hospitals one patient can take me maybe like half a day or even a whole day mm. just to sort out something because it's such rare maybe we don't even have a dose for them okay you don't have the drug for them you don't have a licensed medicines and what can you do next what should you do the patient's dying in front of you what can you do and situations like that with that with if your days occupied by that one patient you still have other patients that are still sick you need to look after and then of course three specialties with different like you're, you're pulling in three different directions really hard and it's not just time management it's not just no matter how you well you do your time management sometimes you just your time just don't have enough for all these specialties and justifying your time and then documenting is a very good way to show to other people this is what my worth need is this is what what is what I have done to maybe save the cost some trust or like preventing medicines um um errors or like um, make sure that I've implemented something to prevent errors and to help patient safety. It can justify and um, why you need more pharmacy time. Everything we do is almost like behind the scene. I know people can see that we've got emails from all across the country because be a specialist center people keep asking you have you got experience in this and that mm. like you've got on the two emails a day it can mount up to quite a lot of emails and quite a lot of your time as well and then and that's why we actually set up um pharmacist network 
within our specialties. So I have set take up a, pedi- um, a pediatric rheumatology network and also set up an immunology and allergist pharmacist network as well, just so that we can actually share our experience via the platforms. So not just one person get all the questions, we can actually share our experience from different centers and ask the questions from different centers, share the guidelines if you like. So this is, is very useful, especially in like rare diseases. Absolutely. And also, you know, sharing information, even guidelines or procedures or ideas mm. helps to save a lot of time Definitely. that you would have spent doing that on your own when you can have a look at what someone else is doing, yeah. um, what service they provide, what projects they've worked on, what research they're doing, and then try to implement something similar potentially mm. um, where, where you work and not doing all that groundwork on your own. Yeah, or even share job descriptions so we can create a image. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, actually. Yeah, yeah. Job descriptions are a nightmare. Yeah. Um, so I know that you're you've got the you've got you said a rheumatology pharmacist network which yeah. you've done through MPPG. Yes. You've got an immunology pharmacist network that's independent, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously you are the co-chair of the London MP, M, MPPG as Inter- well. Yeah, industry group. Yeah. Yeah. When I was reading all of this, on top of the fact that you've got a triple way job and you do research just you know willy nilly on the side, <laughs> um, how do you manage your time? Um, just being very flexible and very clever, I guess. Um, the thing is, I have been in this job for quite a while. So the clinical side of things, I can condense them and use them very effectively. That okay. helped me squeeze a bit more time. And I invest a lot in developing my juniors. So they really support me to that. do the ground job. And unfortunately, because they are so equipped, they always leave me. <laughs> but in a way, because... I, I really like this. When I get a new Ben 7, I just like, what are your aspirations? If you don't have, let's set one. And then I allocate jobs for them, like nice. projects for them that really help them to develop. If they're almost ready as an 8A, you just need some clinical governance skills. So, okay, the guidelines is your responsibility. These are the great deadlines, roll with it. Like if they want really want projects, like, okay, why don't we do some optimization in this area? We can do that. But, First of all, I need to make sure you are clinically up to date. You know what you're doing with this cohort. When to shout for help. Make sure that you are half peppy and integrate into the team before I let them off. So it's almost like a reward thing. If you've done these things, you can have these things. And then if they actually up on the ground and really running, then it release me to do a lot of other things um, that may need a senior's attention. Mm. Uh, the research just happens because we have a tricky patient, you know, <laughs> and then we're just literally writing it up from experience. So it's not something we just deliberately do research on. It's just we, most of my research based on the clinical experience that we have and then just sharing our experience via a published journal. Interesting. You've got lots going on. Yes. And that's not, I've, we've not even finished with your job title <laughs> because you look at novel therapies yeah. and pre existing therapies in terms of kind of like remodeling them in mm. terms of how we're using them. Mm. And you're, you're, you're very passionate about the fact that there are inequalities uh, with children and access to medicine. So I guess this has formed the, the basis of uh, the research that you're getting involved with. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, with my immunology role, most of my children with immunodeficiencies would not ha- will have a very short life expectancy without any corrective therapies like bone marrow transplant or gene therapies. And with this cohort of patients, when they undergo these corrective therapies, they usually have their immune system suppressed for a very, very long time, or they don't have an immune system to start with. And they are very um, prone to have um, infections. And if you have a fungal infection, you've got a high prognosis to, sorry, a high chance of mortality. And we have antifungals available, not a lot, and not a lot of them are licensed in children. And we usually take levels. But for these patients, if you, because of the long half-life, you need one le- one week to get into levels and then the levels get sent to another lab in Bristol and take another week to come back. Look at the level, it's not therapeutic. 
in the another two weeks of turnaround time. So all these four weeks of not having a good therapy, the fungal is actually eating away the patient's brains or lungs uh-huh. or livers. So this is a huge problem for, for me. And then just I remembered there was a mum screaming in the corridor because her child didn't make it. And she was screaming her heart and lung. And I, and I was like, what can I do for these children? And on the same time, the level comes back from another child. And then the doctor said to me, oh, it's funny, it's never in range. You know, it's something's normal for them. So why? Why do you not have a dose that is specifically for children? We can get it to the level that we need on day one. Why do you have to wait for uh, two weeks or four weeks to know the result? It feels so unfair. It is. And because we don't have a license for children for all these medicines, that is crucial for them. And we don't have a lot of antifungals in the pipeline at Mm. all. And when I was talking through that, I was looking for a research title for the clinical... um, 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 well, what did I do? I did upgrade with the um, with the diploma to become a masters, masters, yeah, MSc in clinical pharmacy practice. And I was looking for a, a, a research title, and I bounced my idea with Joe Stand, Professor Joe Standing. I was like, we have we have models that we can do that. We can study the levels taken from children from real life, and then we can. Um, analyze them statistically to actually see if we have these patients with these specific um, characters, would they have a chance to reach a therapeutic level with these doses? And if not, can we simulate doses to suggest a dose that may actually, maybe a higher dose, may give, take them to a level that we like? And, it's, are this, and then we can just see in practice whether these doses are viable for them. So we can do a lot of simulations and the good thing about this is you don't need clinical trials. Well, you can do this clinical trials, but using real life data, you can just take one or two samples from a lot of patients and analyze them as a population. If you've done the clinical trials, you may need like five or six samples just to describe how the children handle medicines. With this modeling, you may just take two or three samples per patient, analyze them as a cohort. And you've got any characters just like if the patient's diarrhea, if they got some genetic makeup, that may affect drug handling. We can just check whether these doses need to change because of patient's characteristics. That can actually allow us to say, okay, from children under two, this is the doses we need. Maybe a different emergency adolescent, this is doses you need. So you can actually tailor the doses based on the patient's population. So it's really like a step to per- towards personalized medicines, which we don't have at the moment for children. And even you can just do the same thing for adults. And then you can actually, with those um, um, simulations, you can actually help planning clinical trials in advance as well. So you just, you don't need to do trial and error all the time. So did you do this while you were at Great Ormond Street or you were still at Evelina at that time? I was at Great Ormond Street, yeah. And was it within immunology? Um, When I did my proposal, I was doing these three jobs. So it was just a plan it wasn't actually going to roll with it. And I was really lucky that I was awarded an NIHR clinical doctoral fellowship. <laughs> so I can actually have three years to actually do it as a PhD project. You weren't lucky. You worked really hard. <laughs> I worked it, hard. It's not an easy application. It takes, you know, an average of one year to do that application. So that's not luck. That I is hard work and dedication. Work. I, and I had a lot of help with other people because doing research is not just on your own. You need a lot of people to help you with even talking to patients and parents, especially I, my application was one month after COVID kicked in full time. And I was like, all the all the appointments I scheduled for the patient and parents to give me opinion on, on my project has gone literally just cancelled because of COVID now everything's on lockdown you can't have face-to-face mm. meetings they can't travel and a lot of people helped me to like oh why don't you do this and that and the parents gave a lot of time to talk to me and medical team come help so I actually gave me ideas refine my project look at implications my supervisors helped me to give me ideas 
and like and a lot of people helped me to even give me an interview panel like about 20 people gave me an interview panel it's like it's a lot of people helping me so pharmacists need the, the, the opportunity we've got a good candidate here let's push her forward and it's just a very it's a it's a really hard journey but it's something that's definitely worth going for especially if you've got a good idea to actually improve patients health and what's the uh, topic that you're working on? So I am looking for the ASO antifungals, um, the doses for the children that are undergoing bone marrow transplant. And these antifungals usually don't have a license and we always thought we had never in range and we've got high risk of fungal infections, this patient's cohort. But these medicines also interact with psychosporin that is needed for the transplant and they can push the psychosporin levels to a toxic level. At the moment, we just literally like, yeah, reduce by 20, 30%. Fingers crossed. Oh, everything's okay. okay. But we, we can now statistically analyze it to say for sure, like not for sure, but like I've got a higher chance if you reduce this patient's cohort by maybe 20, 30% because this data is showing for this. And you've got diarrhea, we've got other things we need to do. So just having a better informed dosing guideline would be a useful thing coming out for my PhD project. And it's amazing. It's on your own patient cohort. And you can come through the fellowship with your research and the outcomes to make changes for patients that you're actually looking after on a day-to-day basis. That's very rewarding. Yeah, and the parents actually come to me with the stories of the struggles, their Mm. worries when the patient's been told like, oh, my organs have been affected, the kidneys have been affected, the liver has been affected because of the medicines, the interactions, the anxiety, where they keep on changing your doses, we just don't know what's going to happen. Um, again, another aspect of my PhD is looking at the doses for immunoglobulins. So can we have find a better dose for them? Or do they need to have a lower level that is safe for them? And then the parents share with me like, that because we haven't got the right dose, they have to come in for IV infusions rather than subcut infusions. And because of that, they need to miss a, a important day for the other siblings. A school event but they have yeah. to miss it because they have to come in for infusions the trauma they have and people coming into my home and and they may say like oh it's not my home anymore because I've got lots of different healthcare professions even the healthcare professions they're strangers people walking into my house every day different people and these things actually if we can get the doses right in this in a evidence base we may need to avoid all this mm. or at least granting them a near to normal life that we may and save them just some money. Yeah, <laughs> that's always a bonus, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, you're also a pharmacogenetic champion Yes. for the hospital. What does that mean and what does it involve? Um, we are now getting an era when we can actually sequence the whole genome and actually sequence snips of the of the genetic makeup and some if a page if um, everyone's makeup is different but some people have got a specific gene makeup they may affect the drug handling maybe they um, metabolize the drug quicker or slower or some people just would not respond to it at all maybe some drug needs to be changed to another form as from a pro drug to a normal drug and they don't have the enzymes to metabolize it it's not going to worthwhile in the giving to the child to the patient so this is the pharmacogenomics actually looking at the genetic makeup of that person and then we can tailor the dose based on the genetic makeup the way forward yes so exciting we have gotten more and more evidence now and with the commissioning of more um genetic testing um, in, in, in NHS, we can now utilize this information to inform us, let's say, if the patient needs to have uh, some sort of HIV treatment, a back of it. And if you don't have certain enzymes, you're going to, go and metabolize mm-hmm. it. So if we know this, uh, oh, this patient and is needing these medicines, we need to do this test. And then we can actually see, oh, okay, this patient may not be suitable because they pay, it's not going to metabolize it. Like, or like before, and as umpires and as a oh, this patient is going to be a very slow metabolizer, so this is going to have a huge impact. They're going to have loads of side effects from it. So, we need to reduce the dose or not introduce it to, at all to the patient. So, we can have all the different choices, at least inform the patient that 
this is the genetic makeup, this is what I expect to be, and have a conversation with them. And you're also, I mean, the list is just endless here. <laughs> I don't know if you're that much, I have to say. What? <laughs> You've lost it. Literally. You're also working with NHS England in terms of like pharmacogenomics, um, like a working group. Yes. Um, because I was just going to say that it's great that we're doing all of this and I assume all of this is being done in the hospital environment, but then how does it link with primary care and GPs and GPs being able to understand the tests that come through and the results and then tailor the dosing and the drugs uh, specifically for the child? Yeah, so the GE note, um, so the working groups actually putting together some information leaflets for practicing practitioners to see if you have this certain type of results, what do you expect to see? What are you going to do with those? So I wouldn't expect the GPs to commission the the, the blood test. Sometimes they can, um, 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 you know, do the blood test. But when they have been told about this blood test, what they're going to do, for example, if they prescribe carbamazepine, I've got this mutation, what are going to do with this? I'm going to and um, so you can have this information leaflet at, at your fingertip. You've got this um, version where um, this is basically a very quick summary. If you've got this, got to do this, do this, this and that. But if you've got more background information, you can look to have a another resource that gives you more a detailed explanation, the rationale behind this. And they all collaborate based on the evidence out there. So we've got a team of us putting this information together and I'm part of this working group and working with Nicola and other really talented people to put this information in a understandable and practical ways to help practitioners to to interpret the results when they have been given those information and make it available because everyone is now having the shared information, isn't it? They have a, a lot of information they are they can access to, and they can actually help um, the patients and the GP to make the right information and right decisions. That's amazing. You are doing so much. Have I left anything off? I can't. I don't <laughs> even know I do that much. <laughs> I love I don't this. do them all in one day, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure you don't. But it's it just demonstrates your love for your job and it demonstrates your love for pediatrics because throughout this conversation, you are highlighting gaps. You're highlighting and questioning. You're curious um, about things that are happening in clinical practice. Where are the loopholes? You know, where where do we not have enough evidence? Where are we seeing that our patients and parents are having problems? And what can I do to fix it? You're a problem solver. I love that. Yeah, I, I think a lot of pharmacists are problem solvers. We yeah. are built that way. We are built that way, but you do a lot and that's amazing. And I love that. And your passion about pediatric patients is, is shining. Do you know why? Mm. Because I'm so lazy. <laughs> like if I solve it once and for all I don't need to do this again okay well that's a good motivator that's a good motivator it's like I just can't repeat it myself again mm. again and I'm again. with you on that I do get very frustrated in the job sometimes when we're doing things that cause inefficiency or make the process five times too long um, and I would rather take the responsibility to fix it and find an easier, more efficient way of working so that we don't have to continue to waste time because I want to do a lot. Yeah. I want to achieve a lot. And in order to do that, I, I need I need to turn things around. And this bit, it makes your life less boring. <laughs> you guys have different challenges every day, not yeah. the same thing every day. And even if you do the same thing every day, you can see, and especially if you know the system very well, you can see what what is the gap in service that you can develop and we've, we've, we've got such a good precision where we've got a good um, um, relationship with the MTT team with the parents and then they just give you so much opportunities and they're so supportive when you have a good idea well if you have a good idea well, I just bounce it to you it's just not a good idea I can tell you why I can actually refine your ideas and making ideas into projects and mm. interactions yeah, no, I love that. What does the future hold for you? What are your next steps? I'm not too sure yet, <laughs> but I'm actually looking into um, um, consultancy framework. Nice. Yeah, because I really want to incorporate research 
into my clinical job. Yeah. So consultants are one way forward, but also clinical academics are another pathway that I like to pursue as well. Mm-hmm. No matter what I end up doing, I really want to have research as an integral part of my practice. A, I'm just don't want to have these three years wasted, all these learning opportunities given to me, going down the drain. And B, with the, what I've seen now, is it just make things so much linear to me. So okay, this I can just streamline these things much quicker. Even if I incorporate research into that, this I can collect data along the way rather than have to do it like at one big thing and just collect things along the way, make it yeah, absolutely. smaller bits things. You're building your portfolio towards yeah. a really nice job title. Yeah. Um and becoming a, a super specialist, superwoman, <laughs> more than you already are. Um, but it does give you the structure to follow the pathway. And there's a lot of things that you've done already that you could put into that portfolio. Exactly. Um, and you can, you know, add more things in and it gives you the opportunity to identify gaps that you can fill. Like you said, academia being one of them. I'm kind of the opposite. I need to do more of the research side because I do lots of the academic side. I do some collaborations. Um, yeah. So um yeah, I had my PDR only a couple of weeks ago and, and Sean is now my manager. Oh. And she said, it's <laughs> it's time that you think about the consultant pathway. Um, so, it's yes, I am considering it. use of your PDR. Yeah. This is the right way forward to do a PDR. Yeah. So we are going to work together to figure out whether or not it's the right pathway for me. But I think it should be. So people watching, listening, watch this space. Yeah. Yeah, because... I think the um, the framework itself is a very good reflect, helps me to reflect yeah, what absolutely. I've done. And when I did my NHL fellowship application, I, I did the um, APP, the Advanced Pharmacy Practice Framework oh, before yeah. that. And it really helped me to identify the gaps I need. So when I do the application, it becomes really easy for me to say what are my um, development opportunities needs to be. And what my like, what my plan's supposed to be. It also helped me to reflect. I've actually done an awful lot in my job that I don't even think about it before. Um, now you've got this, it on record. Yeah, I put it on record. And <laughs> even you say as a PDR, it's really easy to show your managers. Like people say, oh, I may not. I'm having a hard time to, uh, you know, justify why I'm going to do these courses. This is actually a structured way to help you reflect. Look, this is the gap, and I identified this. Or can you help me identify learn opportunities that I can do within the next year? Yeah. It's very useful. There's always growth in pharmacy and there's definitely definitely always growth in paediatrics. Yes. I think I'm going to end episode there. I've got loads of information. We've highlighted so much of your pathway and um, you should be really proud of everything that you've achieved because it's, yeah, incredible. Um, So thanks so much for joining me for this episode and uh, look forward to hearing more about your journey later on. Thank you so much.